Content on this episode may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I'm stood at the bottom of these stairs and there's a guy at the top and there's a guy stood at the bottom. This guy's got a gun in his hand. He's going, oh, pull your T-shirt up and turn around to, just to make sure I wasn't carrying a gun or something. Yeah. Walked up these steps, a guy with two plastic bags, one full of white powder and little wraps in one and one full of uh, little marijuana joints. I think he only had like 10 joints at the time. So I was like, I'm used to buying it in like a bag. I was like, well, what's this? So I was like, well, I'll take all of them. Yeah, that was kind of start to my trip in the favela. I'm Anne Dibbon, and this is Unexpected Turns, where along with my good friends, Beverly and Julie, we get to talk to some pretty amazing people whose lives have taken an unexpected turn. Today, we're talking to George, who has spent over 20 years traveling the globe. Emotional trauma as a teenager led to George dropping out of school and becoming involved with drugs. With the support of family, he went off to Australia for a year with a friend in an attempt to make a fresh start. A change of scenery often isn't enough though. And for George, it's only in the last three years since becoming sober that he's been able to start processing the fallout of the tragic circumstances he experienced as a young teenager. Let's hear George tell his story. George, nice to meet you. Yesterday when you said uh, Beverly, I thought you meant the place near Scunthorpe. Oh, sorry to disappoint you, George. <laughs> We're in Abergavenny in South Wales. Have you been there? I've been to Wales, yeah, but I can't, I can't remember exactly. <laughs> well, you have been pretty much everywhere. Yeah, my first trip was Australia for a year. It's a long way to go for your first trip. Basically, I had a few issues at school, wasn't really going to plan. Didn't get my GCSEs the last time I was at school. I was in a bit of a rumble with some of the kids. Ended up getting concussion, so I didn't really feel comfortable going back to school. Gosh. Went back to take my exams, but I only got entered to two. So obviously I failed them. And this was when you were 16? Yeah, uh, 15, 15. And then my dad had passed away. I can't think it was just before that. So I think that was a lot of the reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite heavily dyslexic, so I struggled at school anyway. So it was, I don't know, looking back, I kind of, think what the hell was going on back then I can't really explain it but yeah just frustration from struggling to learn might have made it hard and rebelling against the world and I don't know watching the wrong movies listening to the wrong music giving me bad influences did you have support in school for that George at all I did yeah um probably once a week I'd like a special needs type class and it was two other kids we just got help with dyslexic mm. kind of mine particularly was spelling yeah. That was, and they say people with dyslexia get to the same ending, they just take a different route kind of thing. Yeah. And like I said, my dad died. Mm. So I think at 15, it just say I didn't get my GCSEs. And so basically, I then signed up for college to do GCSEs part time over two years. Again, I just really wasn't, didn't really have my head in it. Did a year of that, made a new group of friends separate to my kind of school friends. That was good, good way of like, I don't know, just meeting people from different areas because I've always been in this one area. Yeah. Tragically, a friend of mine, uh, I'd talk about, but me and him were playing pool one day and he got a phone call and I uh, didn't really think much of it. He said goodbye. And a week later, his dad knocked on my door and said, have you seen my son? I said no. A couple of days or maybe a day later, I got a text. This was when mobile phones were just kind of, wasn't awesome. Mm. It was 20 years ago. I got a text from a guy saying, have you seen the front 
pages in the newspaper. So I had a look and they found a body in a wasteland. So off my own back, I rang up like a police phone number to try and find out any information. And the next day at six in the morning, I had CID at my front door, wondering why I'd rung up at 17 or 17 at this stage, getting interrogated about police. Like they kind of set you up. They say, is this your best friend? And then you say, yeah. And then they say, well, you should know this. You should know this. Mm. And uh, we were both smoking at the time, smoking pot. And uh, a few fingers were getting pointed at that. And it was all a bit up in the air. We didn't really know what happened. But it was his body. And they found him burnt under a mattress in a wasteland, which was quite disturbing at the time. Definitely. So I had a bit of time off. And I even I remember went back to college. And I remember some kid in my class. I didn't really know him. But he obviously didn't know that I knew the guy. And he was going, oh. But it was me, it was me that killed him, you know, joking around with his friends. That really kind of, I still remember that and thinking, oh. You've no idea. You know, yeah. But um, so I left college and didn't get my GCSEs again because of that. And it's a shame because I was not far off. But again, I, I don't know what was going on at that stage of my life. I just wasn't dedicated enough, really. I was kind of doing it because I had to, not really because I wanted to. Just moving on from there, all this, uh, me and a friend, my parents kind of pushed us and, Gave us a bit of money and flew us off to Australia. Started off in Malaysia, which was just a completely different world, just scuba diving. And wow. I'm like, on my pictures, I'm like super skinny, completely pale. It's like totally out of my zone, just didn't know what was going on, just completely crazy. Yeah, and then we made it over to Australia. Uh-huh. And again, travelling with a friend. Again, having great time. But a complete change. And, and the friend you went with was, was a little bit older? Uh, no, it's the same year. So he had, he knew the guy as well. Like it affected all our whole group. Yeah, I do even to this day. That put a big split in our group because I remember years ago, when I was twenty odd. I came out of a club and a girl bumped into me and she went, "Oh, you're the leader of your gang from school, aren't you?" And I was like, "Uh." It like so we did have like a bit of maybe twenty mates who probably were classed as a type of gang in some way. Tight group of friends. So, uh, yeah, so I remember we all met up in the cemetery in a different cemetery, there's like a cemetery where I used to hang out and just because it was like off the road, you could kind of hang out and smoke and drink. And that was the last time we all really got together because I think it really affected the group and we all kind of split off into our own little groups. I was kind of like the guy in the middle that kept everyone together. Mm. But from that point on, we split into like groups of three and four and it wasn't until years later I realised that I knew everybody, but not everyone was still getting along and I think it had a big effect on us all. But yeah, so me and my friend went off to Australia. Uh, again, massive eye-opener, turning up in hostels. I mean, one hostel had 32 beds in it, which was an experience, but I'd never do that again. <laughs> just like, uh, yeah, just, I think it's not like a university education, but it's an eye-opening education as in learning about people's cultures because you get German, Swedish, goes on and on and on. You get people from everywhere. And, and Australia is beautiful as well. Everywhere you go, I did a bungee jump, skydive, snorkeling, going out on boats. Just insane, really. Everything was a lot cheaper then, but then money wasn't kind of worth what it is now. No. I remember hostels, probably $5 a night. You were out there a whole year. Did you work at all when you were out that time, or you just enjoyed yourself that whole year? Great from what you had, really. I had a few quid in my pocket, so um, I was doing all right. And uh, my friend got to a point where he was running out of cash and kind of wanted to and work on the banana farms or just any kind of work mm, yeah we kind of split up from that point and I think after we split up it kind of it was nice traveling with him but mm. when you're with someone it's quite easy not to talk to people because you can get lost in yourself 
as soon as you're on your own, you push yourself. So I made my own little group of friends. Uh, and then everyone's a different age group as well. Yeah. So I felt I was slightly, still had a young attitude where I thought I knew everything. And I remember thinking back after a few years later, thinking people weren't taking me that seriously because obviously they were like 25, 27, and they knew a bit more about life. And I was just like, oh, no, I do this, I do that. And when I went back the second time at 27, I felt I was a lot more in control. In the hostels, I'd kind of call it a family. I made a group of people. I was like, I want to join the family. And because of my experience in the past, I kind of bring people together and mm. try and organise people to do stuff together, activities, and eat together and stuff like that. There's also a lot of Israelis travel, but... No. There's even Israeli hostels in a few countries. Mm. After they finish their army duty, a lot of them tend to go backpacking. Right. If you get in with the Israelis, they're very uh, friendly as well, and they treat you as family, and I've met some good good guys. Have you kept in touch with any of those people that you've travelled with? Yeah. Um, first time, I made friends with some... Uh, every story leads into another story, so I get <laughs> a bit lost, but... Uh, so I didn't work at first, but eventually, when I got to a place called Early Beach, I worked in a restaurant... There were like, English people working on the bar, Welsh people, a few German, again, another big mix. So then we all got put in staff accommodation. Uh-huh. Always something going on. And it's backpacking, girls and boys. I don't know. <laughs> you don't really fall in love when you're traveling. You kind of just move on very quickly. Yeah. You just can't get too attached because you're going to get heartbroken. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another story. But... Oh. <laughs> We'll come back to that another time then. You have kept in touch with some people, even from all the way back, as you say, nearly 20 years ago. So from this restaurant I worked in, there's one guy, he came up to mine for my 21st. Then he had kids and kind of lost contact. I went to see him. Then just three years ago, I went camping and I found out he was going camping. So I went and stayed with him for a few days. Oh, nice. I'm in contact with people. Everyone's on Facebook still. We might not talk all the time, but I think we'll always have that connection even if we just travelled for a week. But then I've got people on Facebook that I've met, but I've no idea where. I don't know, I look at my Facebook friends sometimes, I think, I'm not actually sure who that is. But... <laughs> and there is such a big, like, I was in Los Angeles, staying in Hollywood Boulevard, and literally, I don't know why, but it just seems to be groups of girls after groups of girls. So one day I wake up, there are five girls from New Zealand in my room. <laughs> fall asleep that night, wake up, five Swedish girls. Jesus Christ, just <laughs> blow my mind. Just... You started off in Australia, George, that was the, for the first year. Originally, I wanted to go to Thailand because we heard lots about it. My friend was a bit stubborn, so we went to Malaysia. But then on the way back, I was like, I was doing Thai boxing before we left. All right. I was like, I really want to go to Thailand. You know what I mean? I do Thai boxing. We had to change all the flights on the way back. We did six weeks in Thailand, which again was complete chaos. You get quite high prison sentences over there for doing drugs and stuff. But then we got to Koh Panyang. Yeah. Well, even the first night in Bangkok, we were like, we're not going to do anything. And then we're smoking and went to Koh Panyang and we're staying up for two days in a row, partying and look back now and think a bit crazy, but just what you did back then. Do you think you were lucky not to get into any dangerous situations back then, as you say, with the prison sentences, etc. they have in Thailand? Yeah, I mean, I think they're a bit easier going on tourists. I don't know, it's just potluck, I think. But I think there's so many tourists over there these days. I think they actually have like a different type of police force now. You know what I mean? They know that people are going to do bad things or whatever. So a bit more easygoing, I think. Or they're just happier taking bribes. And What would you say is one of the most thought-provoking places or situations that you found yourself in? The one that stands out, um, I was in Colombia. 
and I uh, met these two English guys and they said, oh, when you get to Brazil, you can recommend this hostel. So uh, I got to Brazil to Rio de Janeiro, got a bus to Copacabana Beach, Lovely. got in this taxi, I didn't know the final, like, just to take me up to the final bit. I got in this car, he's driven up, got to a certain point, and he's gone, oh, I can't drive any further. I was like, oh, why not? He goes, oh, because it's a favela. I went to favela. I was like, that, that rings a bell. I've heard that word before. That's kind of not a good place to go, right? It's a bit dodgy. And he's like, yeah, that's the one. They hadn't really researched where I was going. Mm-hmm. So I had this phone number, passed it to the taxi driver. He spoke to a guy. Next minute, this big guy's come walking down these stairs. Gone, oh, come with me. And he was this big Swedish guy who was... And anyway, he was living in the favelas and there was a hostel in the favelas. Mm. So literally, I've got out, not really know what's going on. Uh, took this little track and the first thing I've seen is probably a 16-year-old with a walkie-talkie holding a handgun. So that was a bit thought-provoking. Get around the next corner, there's a guy holding a machine gun. I'm thinking, what's going on mm-hmm. here? And this is like 12 o'clock at night, pitch black. Anyway, so we got into this hostel, which was just another bu- building in the favelas, well, you can imagine favelas, they don't really have the greatest electricity, they don't have the greatest water supply. Everything's kind of half built. It's not a fancy place and it's all like little, it's like a labyrinth. Yeah. Like it's so easy to get lost. And at the time, like I said, I was smoking a lot. Mm. And uh, as I've got there, I've gone into this kitchen area. There's a, like a Hell's Angel type Swedish guy on this hammock sat there smoking. I've turned to this big guy who come and collected me. I've gone, oh, where can I get some of that? And he goes, oh, you've got to go out there to get it. I was like, you sure I'm safe? And he's like, yeah. Basically, if they mess with any tourists, then the police are going to come into the favelas. So they want as little trouble as possible. And because that backpack, I don't know how long it had been there, they knew that we were coming down with cash. So like when I went out, I ended up finding this kid. And he's like pointed at this other guy, pointed at another guy, and I kind of got off down these little paths. And then I'm stood at the bottom of these stairs, and there's a guy at the top, and there's a guy stood at the bottom. This guy's got a gun in his hand. He's gone, oh, pull your T-shirt up and turn around. I've done that, pulled my T-shirt up to, just to make sure I wasn't carrying a gun or something. Yeah. Walked up these steps, a guy with two plastic bags, one full of white powder and little wraps in one, and one full of uh, little marijuana joints. I think he only had like 10 joints at the time, so I was like, I'm used to buying it in like a bag. I was like, well, what's this? So I was like, well, I'll take all of them. Yeah, that was kind of start to my trip in the favela. So I've been there a few days. I've been there like a week. Generally in the day, it felt really safe. Like they're just normal people, you know. They just haven't got much money, and they're just portrayed as it's the only way to make money. Like people go to the favelas to buy their drugs, so there is like that cartel there. Mm. So basically, one night it was close to Easter. There's two guys. There's two favelas next to each other. I was in one of them. The gangs hadn't whatever hadn't paid the police the money. They they pay the police to stop them let or let them do their business kind of yeah. thing. They hadn't paid. So that night. Me and a few people have gone out to like a nightclub or whatever. And as we've come back, the whole favela's in pitch black. And I'm drunk and I'm stood at the bottom. It's on a massive hill as well. And there's only one way in and there's always a police car parked at the bottom when you get there. So we turned up, it's pitch black. And with these two other people, they're like, oh, we're not going in there. And I was like, drunk. I was like, oh, sorry, I'll go on my own then. Um, I remember trying to get in. I got to the hostel and trying to get in, but all the electricity was gone. And it was like an electric buzzer to get in. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of stood on this little alleyway thinking, Three, four in the morning, I'm like, I want to get inside. I don't want to be hanging around here. Anyway, so I managed to get inside. Next day, I wake up, and, uh, sat around having breakfast, and a couple have come back. They've gone, oh, we managed to get a 20% discount off our room. 
I was like, oh, right, what happened? He went, oh, there's two bullet holes in our bedroom wall when we got back. Yikes. And I was like, oh, right, you sure you, why did you even pay? Like, I'm sure <laughs> that's good enough reason to not even pay. Sub 20%. <laughs> exactly. And what had happened as well, every now and again, because the water and electricity is free, they don't pay for it. Yeah. The companies, whatever, just cut, they cut off the water. So sometimes you won't have any water for two or three days because they just cut it off. And the same with electricity. But what had happened was basically the police had come into the favelas because they hadn't paid the money. And, uh, you know, I said before, there was kids on every corner. So what's happened is as the police come closer, the kids fire shots into the air to like warn the next guys to keep whoever's got the drugs and move. Okay. When they'd done this, they'd put two bullets had gone through this wall and two bullets had gone through the electric pylon outside our hostel. So when they shot through the pylon, it took out all the electricity for the whole favela. It was just pretty bonkers. So even at one point, I was in my room with like the uh, bunk beds or whatever, and someone said, oh, the police have come into the favela. So I'm like, I'm looking out this window, and I can see like four police all with guns like walking around like that, just because I'm interested or whatever. Next minute, I've just seen this gun just go, it's just aiming straight at me. So I've just hit the deck, like, just like completely spooked out or whatever. But it was really good to actually see the electricity company, the people that work for the, like I say, the tourists were fine. They could come in, yeah. there was no problem. A lot of the Brazilians don't want to go into the favelas. So they were struggling to get people that worked at the electricity company to come into the favela to fix electricity. Mm. So eventually they had two guys in. They could only get two guys to come and like, do the final fix. So basically, I don't know, maybe 100 men from the favela, they all tied ropes around this uh, electric pylon. They were all like going, heave ho, heave ho. And they were all helping. Everyone came together as a community. Like, it was really good to see mm. like, when it, they all came together kind of thing. And I was watching this out the window, literally just that, like I say, the bullet. It was that, it was just there kind of thing. We are quite high up, so we are looking down. But even just before I carry on, in that favela, you could order pizza from the other fella and some kid would bring it you. It was mad. It was just, the whole thing was just completely mad. So you're in a favela, but yet you can get your pizza delivered from, it was just the whole thing, the whole city. Yeah. And it had a, had a decking on top so you could sit out and watch Copacabana Beach. You just, it was just mad anyway. Basically, they got rid of this electric pylon, they brung another one up. Again, they're all just holding ropes and it's a good distance down to the main road to get it in. And uh, I can see they've got someone from electricity company, he's come in and he's doing what he's doing, trying to get it ready. And out of nowhere, you just heard this kind of, someone hitting a pot and pan right over the other side of the favela. You just hear this doof, doof, doof. And then from the other side of the valley, you hear another. Everyone's, and eventually, like, the whole favela's just going out, hitting the pots and pans, and it was just real community. They obviously wanted electricity back on. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like a protest. It's like, come on, come on. Strange. Like I say, people, they don't choose to be poor, and they don't choose to do what they're doing. They're doing it out of desperation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, everyone I met, they're really nice people. They're just in a harsh situation. And it, it wasn't all Brazilians as well. There was other people from South America, Mexicans. It was just people that have fallen on bad times. It's the only place I've ever seen. There were people, like 14-year-olds sleeping on the streets. When I was there, I think a 14-year-old got shot because he pulled out a gun on a police officer. So they even saw a family on the street, which I've never seen before. That was quite... Mm. Like heart wrenching, really, just to see how bad poverty can be. Mm. Well, it's very sad. 
So what have you got out of out of travel, George, personally, you know, is has it been a way of a escape or has it helped you to process, you know, your various traumas that have happened to you early on in your life? Like say, uh, well, probably five years ago, kind of realised I was getting a lot of anxiety and felt like I needed to kind of address it. So I stopped smoking cigarettes, which then led to me giving up alcohol, which at the same time I stopped taking any kind of recreational drugs. Still smoked a bit of pot and stuff just because I persuaded myself that that was the only thing keeping me calm and I always struggled to sleep, maybe because of things that have happened. So I've kind of delved into my thoughts and tried to kind of analyse why I think the way I do and stuff like that. So, yeah, I realised that I think my travelling has been a type of escapism because, again, when you're backpacking, if you kind of, everything gets too much, you just pick up your bag and move on. Yeah. Especially when I'm on my own and just do my own thing. And my last travel, when I went through South America, I did find myself being a lot more reclusive. I think there was a slight, because just before I went away, I realised about the anxiety, but I was kind of waiting to talk to somebody, like get some therapy or something, but. I just it was all getting too much to me so I just packed my bags and went and then spent 15 months traveling so I kind of hid away from it I could tell by the end of it it was definitely a bit of reclusism again because I didn't speak Spanish it was easier it, most places I've been everyone kind of refers to English mm-hmm. so it's even kind of, when everyone's speaking Spanish even the French refer to Spanish before English so I found it mm-hmm. I don't know but again I, I'm quite happy in my own company and it's so cheap, I actually inherited some money. So I was only supposed to go for six months, but because I inherited this money, I just didn't want to come back. I just didn't want to face coming back to reality. And da, da, da. And then when I did come back, I think seeing everybody settling down, buying houses, that was another anxiety, which I find quite hard. But from travelling, like I said, it's a bit like university. It's not a degree or anything, but I think I've learned a lot about people, how the world works. Sure. and what's what's out there really i find it very hard being back home because i just know the rest of the world's going round and so much is happening mm. i generally said to people when i met them you can always earn more money but you can't turn back time mm. we're all on the same journey we just take different paths and it's true it's just the way not had a perfect life things have gone up and down but those things have led to my actions and like i say only in the past few years i've kind of analyzed what i've been doing and yeah realized that I've been surrounded by a lot of toxic people in the past and I was one of those toxic people. So after 25 years of having certain habits, I'm finding it quite hard to find new things to do. I find myself, I never really was into exercise before, but now I find myself running, going out for walks, going to the gym. A lot of people do these in their 20s. So I always tried, but because I was drinking and smoking, it never really Mm, came to much. But now I'm getting more of a buzz off adrenaline than I am off wanting to do drugs and stuff and again I never like I was never classed as an alcoholic I was never classed as a drug addict it was all recreational but I think if I carried on then it just wouldn't be good just time to call it a day really did you just do that yourself you didn't have any help or anybody support you you just decided enough's enough I think a lot of it was just bung on from the anxiety like I could tell just got to a point where I felt like I was having panic attacks and mm-hmm. not I never had a panic attack but for an example, I went into a supermarket and I stood in the queue and I felt like very claustrophobic and I felt spinning out, felt dizzy. This was the first time I really noticed it. When I got to like the cashier, 
I made up an excuse. I went, oh, I'm really hungover. And oh, I just feel, he hadn't said anything to me. It was just all in my head. Yeah. So I felt like I was having symptoms of a panic attack. And from that point on, I was like, right, I need to kind of address this. And mm. so I went, did a, did a course called Anger Management. Right. Which you kind of sit there and six weeks in a row, someone will come up and explain about why you might be thinking in certain ways. And that's when I learned about anxiety. Until that stage, I thought everybody thought the way I did. It wasn't until I learned about anxiety and then I realised what anxiety was. Then I started to notice it a lot more, which then made it a lot harder, where before I just thought that was life. And then learning about it made me think back, oh, three years ago, I remember thinking like this. Obviously, that was high levels of anxiety, but because I didn't know what anxiety was. Because before, like, smartphones and the internet really kicked in. Mm. All this information wasn't there, you know what I mean? It's like now all these kids are so bulked up and big from the gym because they've got all the information on their phones and there's a gym on every corner. But we didn't have that when we were growing up. No. Just the world's changing. Yeah. I still feel like, I'm, well, I did feel like I was in my late 20s. I'm realising now that I'm not. <laughs> no. I just, I just want to move on to the next stage of my life, really. Well, good for you. Cool. You said... um you'd started that anger management course did you just find that online or did somebody point you in that direction what happened was I came back and my friend was getting married I was trying to organize a stag do and my mum and my brother turned to me and said you're just very like I think I was just extremely worked up by it and they could notice a difference in me and then I think my mum suggested it that's kind of how it got organized and Again, I didn't notice it in myself. It wasn't until someone pointed it out. Again, I think it was a build-up of the anxiety and just something happened probably four or five years. I think I split up with a girlfriend, fell out with my old boss, had to move back home. So I think there was a few big things, yeah. lost trust in people. Yeah. So then, again, that's probably why I stopped drinking and smoking. I thought everything was going to plan and then it stopped. <laughs> yeah. So we looked at life, we analysed it. I think what happened from all the stuff that happened when I was younger, yeah. I spent 20 years blacking out by smoking and drinking. And then suddenly it all caught up with me. Mm. Like not a breakdown, but reality check. And yeah. Yeah. I think I'd just been like, say escaping it. Has to come out somewhere, you know, and at some, some stage you, you have to process it, you know, because it's, it's, it's there. I've come out the other side now. That's good. One of the, things I started following on Instagram was your trip to the Cambia. How how did that come about? Uh, a couple of old work colleagues. Uh, one of them, his mum went out to Gambia quite often. I think he had been to see his mum. And uh, On the plane on the way back, he was sat next to a woman. They got chatting. She explained that she owned a, well, she lived out there and she had a charity called the Rainbow Run. Mm which I believe is still going. I think there might even be a trip underway at the minute. He came back and he had a, a Land Rover and he helped me and my friend put in some money for another one. So we spent three or four weeks kitting them out, getting jerry cans and, I don't know, just doing little things to make them better. My friend who organised, who came up with the idea, had a bit more money than me. So he went a bit fancy and put like a fridge in the back and, Oh, nice. I'll probably put accessories in, which 
probably didn't pay off money-wise in the long run, but he was just one of them kind of guys who liked to go full out. So, yeah, it was basically him and his girlfriend in one car, me and my friend in another, or in uh, Jeeps or Land Rovers. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Uh, the lady on the plane explained that there was a, a group, one guy from Scotland and the rest of them were from Fishguard in Wales. All right. They'd been doing jumbo sales and they had uh, been collecting presents to take to the Gambia and they're basically doing their own thing. But we said, is it possible to come along kind of thing? We'd never met any of them before. A couple of them were ex-army, a couple of them were ex-Hells Angels turned Christians. Good mix. <laughs> A random mix, to be honest. They were a lot older than us. It was all a bit hickledy pickledy, but basically, me and my friend set off before my other, the guy who organised it, had a few things to tie up. So we set off first. We were headed down to Portsmouth to catch the, San, the uh, ferry over to Santander. Yeah. Actually, felt a bit bad, but uh, when we saw the group of these people, we like worked out who they were on the ferry. We were kind of like, because uh, mm. me and my friend, we hadn't organised or anything. We were just like going along for the fun kind of thing. And uh, so we met them on the ferry and we were quite different people. We were all on the same charitable, there for the same charitable reason, but we just were different people at the time anyway. So they said when they got off the ferry, they wanted to spend four days driving across Spain. Yeah. And we were like, we think we're going to meet you at the bottom of Spain. And basically we just drove all the way to Marbella in a day. Oh. and went to Gibraltar as well. That's a lot of miles, isn't it? It must have been pretty much 18 hours driving. Yeah. Oh, I know the full journey was about 4,000 miles, so I guess it was just under halfway. Gosh. It was before smartphones, and um, four days had passed, and we'd have been out partying a bit. And uh, they said to us, oh, we'll meet you at Lidl. <laughs> and then we were like, oh, yeah, we'll meet you at Lidl, right? Not really thinking there's probably about 100 Lidls in the south of Spain. So anyway, we've turned up at Lidl and we're there, kind of sat in this car park thinking, hmm, thought they'd be quite easy to notice. There's basically yeah. five vehicles. One of them was a bus. One of them was a coach. And then there were three yellow Land Rovers with a rainbow painted on the side. <laughs> so quite easy to spot kind of thing. Got to miss, yeah. So anyway, five or six hours have gone past and we're thinking, hmm, came to us that maybe we're in the wrong Lidl. And we got a text saying they've had to jump on the ferry because we were late and all this. So anyway, we've headed down to the port, not even know, knowing which port we were going to. So we've jumped on this ferry and ended up in Tangiers, which was completely the wrong port. <laughs> I remember getting off. We were just driving into Morocco. There were no street lights, it was pitch black. It had been the longest day of our lives, you know what I mean? I remember coming into a city, I don't even know, oh, it was Tangier. All I remember is there was pictures of teeth everywhere, like dentists okay. everywhere. And it wasn't until, until I got settled down in Morocco, but a lot of them don't have the best teeth. And I feel they drink a lot of sugar or something. Not, not everybody, but it came to light. And there was a guy, this is just random things I remember. There was a guy like digging up the road and it was like 10 o'clock at night and it was just busy and crazy. And we just didn't know where we were going. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't have smartphones, so we couldn't just Google where everything was. Mm. And then after driving around this really busy, bright, hectic, all the driving has suddenly gone crazy. Everyone's like driving in crazy directions. Then we noticed a sign for Hotel Abyss. And the whole point was that we weren't going to stay in any big hotels or anything. It was all going to be kind of 
local stuff but after the day we had we were like right we're going in a hotel let's go there nice cold beer the day's gone wrong we're not with everyone we don't know what's going on um the next day we went out and it was like people must have put a lot of money into making it like the next destination but then it must have all got abandoned Mm. so it was like hotel after hotel after hotel and it was just concrete but there were no windows it was like a ghost town yeah and then a really weird thing i remember seeing lots of fruit and veg had washed up on the beach which is very random just wasn't like a nice beach it was just this first time i've been to a country where it was kind of a lot of muslim culture so instead of turning up and there just being loads of tourists kind of on the beach and getting drunk and stuff it was very very different stuff i hadn't experienced before mm. and even the same promenade where it was all dead there were a few bars that were open and uh, this little kid came up to us and asked us for some money so we gave him i don't know like a pound or whatever then a few minutes later this guy came running up behind us big guy He's come over and said, oh, uh, here, take your money back, take your money back. We don't want people to think that we want people to keep coming kind of thing. They didn't want to, like, wreck the tourism there. So that, oh, there was no tourism, but they were really trying to like, get people back and they didn't want it to get a reputation for people trying to... Um... Them, yeah. So it's really crazy just to Tangier on it. Though. How did you get catch up again with the rest of Rainbow Charities? They had set off a fair bit ahead of us, plus they're in a good... 10 hour difference because they'd gone a totally different route if I remember correctly we ended up on the coast close to Rabat and I didn't realise till I got to Morocco that Marrakesh isn't the capital I always thought Marrakesh was the capital yeah Rabat's the capital we got a message from the team ahead and they'd said oh we need Mauritania visas to get into Mauritania which was the next country and we hadn't had it organised and we hadn't met them yet so we arranged to meet them at the uh, embassy so that's where we get these. Uh, we met up and they're saying, right, you need to get to the front of the queue by 12 o'clock so you can get the visa back 24 hours from now. Yeah. And we didn't have any, like photos or anything for this visa. And uh, as we got there, them guys had already queued and had theirs processed. They had pictures, so they managed to get their process. So we ran off trying to get photos. We come back and uh, the gates had shut. So everybody else, apart from me and my mate, were getting their visas done. And they all wanted to set off the next day. So anyway, we stood there like, oh, what do we do? Next minute, a car parking attendant's come up to us and gone, oh, do you want your visas doing? We were like, yeah. He said a certain number. He said like 20. We thought it meant 20 euros. So we were like, 20 euros and you can get it done for tomorrow. He's like, we didn't quite understand how much he said at the time. But this comes back in a minute. And I'm sure you're told not to give your passport to anyone, especially a car parking attendant <laughs> in Morocco. But we didn't have any choice. You could tell he worked there, you know what I mean? He wasn't just a random guy, he was all official clothes or whatever. So anyway, the next day we come back and he stood there. They've all got theirs done and he's come out and he's got these, he's got our passports in his hand and he showed us the visas. We're like, oh, wicked, pulled out 20 euros. And he's like, no, 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 200 euros. We're like, what? So we've got 200 euros out. And he went, no, 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 200 euros each. Oh, God. Everyone was waiting for us, discard our passports. So we handed over 200 euros each, completely got robbed. Definitely. And the cheek of the guy, because our vehicles were full of stuff to give to kids and just, mm-hmm. there was a football in one of the windows and he's, he's gone, oh, can I have that football? And we're like, no, you can't have that football. Like, he just ripped us off 400 euros. So anyway, that's kind of when we met up with everyone and we carried on the journey. So Morocco's massive and yeah. fuel's really cheap. And the, level, the more south you go, the cheaper it gets. So trying to repopulate the south 
I've never seen like wild camels and things like that. Morocco, you just got wild camels everywhere. Crazy. Anyway, um, got to the Mauritania border. There's a ongoing issue between if, whether it's Moroccan land or Mauritanian land. So you get to the border, as usual, everywhere we went, we were getting pulled over. And it felt like every 10 minutes, but it's probably like every five hours or something, we'd get stopped. Where are you going? What are you doing? And then we say we're going to Gambia to give them toys or whatever. And then they would say, well, why aren't you coming to Morocco to give us toys? And why aren't you? So then we had to give out cigarettes, just giving out anything and everything, basically. The piles of stuff in the back of the van was slowly sinking as further we got. So we got to the Mauritanian border and there's a debate about whose land it is. So you get there, you show your passports, and then you're on to no man's land. And basically there's mines that have been left there from years ago. There's only certain routes you can take. Yeah. So as soon as you get through, there's hundreds of men stood there and one comes up and says, right, give me some money and I'll take you the safe route. Mm. So we're like, okay, we'll trust this guy. But then he set us up and then took us down the wrong route. So then another 10 guys have to come out to help push you out. So then that's more, you know what I mean? It's Yeah. So anyway, eventually we got to the other side. And then as we got to the other side, let's look back. And there's like a big lorry that's carrying, like, I don't know, rice or something. And it's just basically, there's obviously a path at the side of all these mines where all the lorries take. And afterwards, you're just like, oh. You should have done that, yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, that's another 100 euros, whatever. So it was becoming quite a costly trip. So yeah, we're in Mauritania, driving along. One of the Land Rovers, the tyre burst. So as we pulled in, the other group who've had a bit of an argument, they've gone, right, we're going to go ahead. So they've gone off. We've got left with these two Welsh guys who are ex-army. They were leading the way, but they didn't really share much information. So we're in the middle of nowhere. And I remember he calls it, right, we're going to, calls it, we're having a recce, which basically just pulls off into the sand towards these sand dunes. We're like, what's a recce? He's like, oh, it means we're staying here tonight. They were just like, I'm like the backpacking I'm used to. There's like a swimming pool and people and restaurants and a bit more going on. But literally, yeah. we haven't seen any cars for like two hours. There's just a road, sand dunes on every side. Nothing there, nothing going on. Pulled over driving along the sand into the desert. And he's like, right, we're going to sleep behind these sand dunes tonight. So we pulled up kind of out of the sight of the road. We're good 10 minutes away from the road, but out of sight, pull the stuff out, kind of put a tent down, starting to prepare for the night. Sun's going down. Just as we're chilling out, sat around on like little deck chairs or whatever. Uh, two Arab men have appeared, full dressed, only see their eyes, carrying swords. We sat there like, oh, yeah. they speak French, so... They're coming over. Only one of us spoke a little bit of French. And a lot of the time we've been asked the question, Kadu, and Kadu means present. Right. So mm. the word Kadu was coming a lot. So I think we pulled out a pack of pasta, dry pasta, which is quite funny because we passed it to him. And he just opened it and started eating dry pasta. But we just sat there and just, yep, that's how you're supposed to have it. Didn't say anything. Well, couldn't really explain. Pulled out some Tesco value boiled potatoes, gave him that. I think we gave them a few cigarettes and they were like, okay, wandered off into the night. This was one of our first kind of real out in the middle of nowhere, out there kind of nights. And me and my friend were polishing off whiskey pretty quick. And I remember being laid in my tent and it had gone dark. It was pitch black because we were obviously in the middle of nowhere. You know, we've heard a few noises and I've got like a bat next to me or something. You know what I mean? I'm in a tent. I'm vulnerable. I don't know where I am. I don't know what's going on. After a few whiskeys, I've heard this noise and I was like, right, sorry, I'm getting out. I'm like, come out with my torch and my bat. Like looked around, didn't see anything, passed out that night, woke up in the morning. We think, well, we heard voices, basically. That's why I jumped out. I've gone over to the Land Rover and one of the windows has been undone. 
Yeah, apparently the guy's wallet had been stolen. And then someone has a pair of shoes hanging on their tent and they had gone. So a few items went missing, basically. So I presume they came back and then when we didn't answer them, they just helped themselves. But if they originally, when they came up, if they had said, right, all of you take your clothes off and walk into the desert, I would have done it because we had no protection. We didn't know where we were. You know, these guys had swords. They were totally, we had no idea of identifying them. Yeah. They had swords on them. From that, we were a bit more curious, uh, not curious. Um, cautious. Security, con- yeah, cautious, sorry. And security conscious after that. But yeah, that was quite an experience. Again, if they'd said just leave, they could have had everything. But the fact that they got some pants, a pair of shoes and a few quid out of a wallet wasn't the biggest deal in the world. But we thought it was better to catch up with everybody else. Definitely. So we're in numbers, bigger numbers, really. You went on further, but you had more experiences like that, didn't you? You had more places where people surrounded you and demanded things. Yeah, I mean, again, we would get stopped quite regularly. But um, in Gambia, we got to a stage where we knew that everything we planned just never really went to plan. We got to Gambia, and again, we were going quite fast. And the whole point was to get to the ferry port so we could cross that day and get to the hotel. But as we got to the ferry port, it took longer than we expected. We got to this little town and the ferry had already gone. But as we stopped and asked for directions, one guy jumped in the car and was like, oh, I'll take you to the next place because I don't think they got much going on. They want to earn a bit of money. So anyway, the next minute, the vehicle was surrounded by people looking in the window, kind of, we couldn't really move kind of thing. The next minute, the police had come up. They said, right, just get out of here, just go. Got the guy back out of the car that had jumped in with us, mm-hmm. told us to leave. We had people like hanging on the back of the car and it was just, totally overwhelming just didn't know really what was going on and uh, well basically we were told there was another ferry leaving from a different port but it was like two hours away so we like set off on this journey managed to get all these people off the car whatever eventually got to this new port and as we've got there we've been told there's three ferries that go across but two of them were broken down so there's only one going mm. so we joined the back of this queue and we're right in the middle of a village there's like a police station just across the road there's a hotel there's the entrance to the ferry port there's lots of market stores. We're just like parked on a road, but we're probably 20 cars back kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The minute we stopped, we had like 10, 15 guys just come and sit leaning on the car, people selling stuff. A couple hours with, and uh, again, we split up from the group again. Another argument happened. There's only actually three vehicles at this point. Everyone's got out and they felt a bit harassed or whatever. I was like, you know what, let's just go with the flow got out and everyone's talking in like a cockney accent because it's the gambia mm. i don't know why they've got this cockney accent but they all have full-on cockney even talking cockney which i didn't understand wow it's totally like bizarre weird they had this one guy who was very kind of in my face kind of trying to talk to me and they would all offer to get you beers or go get food i was using this one particular guy i've given him all this money gone off got me drinks the diet's gone on he's vanished he's come back a bit later on he's offered to give me a little tour walk around I was like, yeah, why not? We've got nothing else to do. The vehicles weren't moving or whatever. So I've ended up uh, going for a walk. And like, I remember walking down to, it's not the sea, it's like a channel that leads in from the sea. Mm. So it is type. Anyway, there's like, there's wild pigs running around on the beach. Again, yeah. I know you see it in like in the Bahama videos where it's all luxurious, but not randomly in the Gambia. And it wasn't clean and it wasn't clear water and everything was a bit rough looking and falling, you know what I mean? It, yeah. It wasn't this place. Sleep. But it was cool to see real life as well. Because it was like fishermen coming in and just, mm. you know what I mean? People just living their normal village life. Definitely off the tourist scene. 
we definitely stood out. I don't think there was many Europeans traveling through there at that stage. No. So anyway, I've given this guy a fair bit of money. I didn't really realize there was drug issues in places like that. But later on, this guy came back and I think he'd been smoking something like very high, high grade. And he came back and he was just so boisterous and very intimidating. And mm. the whole situation changed, really. Felt mm-hmm. a bit more insecure and felt like we were a bit more vulnerable than yeah. done previously. Uh, eventually, everyone was telling me, don't give this guy any more money. You just don't know who to trust. You just don't know who's on your side. And yeah. eventually, I think he was drunk as well, but we managed to get him out of the way anyway, got rid of him. Like I say, the queue wasn't really moving. And then we got told that we weren't going to make it over that day and we are going to have to stay there the night. And we were kind of, like I say, once the, although there was a police station there, we were told it was very dangerous and we were very vulnerable. So we tried to pay a bribe to the people because there's a compound at the ferry port where you can get in and then you're kind of locked off from everybody. Mm-hmm. So we're there trying to pay a few bribes and they're like, yeah, yeah, it'll only be a few hours and we'll get you in, we'll get you in. At this stage, it's gone dark. There's still a lot of people around, but like the other two people we were with, they just weren't getting out of the car. They just had the doors locked. And Good for them. I was like sat on the bonnet, drinking with some of the locals, just being friendly. And you know what I mean? There were some good people, so it wasn't all that bad. But it's just when it got later and later, it got quieter and quieter. Although there was, like I say, a police station, there was also a brothel. So it was in <laughs> the night's gone on. And uh, eventually, I think it was probably 12 o'clock at night, a guy's come up and said, right, we can get you into the compound. So one of the army guys, he's probably six foot seven and big. And he's probably 60 years old. So he's just like a big old guy. And they only had a Land Rover. They didn't have anywhere to sleep. So he's obviously tired. So he's gone and climbed onto the top of the Land Rover and he's passed out on the top. And we're trying to wake him up and he won't wake up. So his ex-Hales angel mate was like, well, I'm going to drive it anyway. <laughs> we're going. There's this yellow Land Rover with a rainbow on the side. A six-foot monster guy on top, passed out, driving into it. It's just it's so weird. The Gambians have just been like, what's going on here? At least you got into the compound and, and made the ferry. Again, couldn't, there was nowhere to sleep, so... We've got like deck chairs and just stuff which you really don't want to sleep on. We just had to climb into the back. There's no curtains or anything. So I'm laid there with all these lights shining through, like a spade in my back and just like the worst night's sleep ever. And then the most surreal bit was the next day we got on the ferry and there's lots of foot passengers, Bob Marley tunes playing. We've just got maybe 100 Gambians just staring at us. <laughs> and it was just, I remember this woman just stood there with a chicken next to my window and she's looking at me the whole time you know like you just don't know where to look you just... <laughs> oh man that was pretty much last day of the trip lots of adventure i know spent the last 20 years having one adventure after another and you've said you know some of the reasons is to get away what are your future plans have you got apart from immediately you're going off to croatia what other plans have you got or haven't you made any so i didn't say before the reason we went to gambia was because the two people I'd worked with had brought old Tesco refrigeration materials and they'd sent them over in a container which had arrived at a school in Gambia yeah. and they were building classrooms for a school in Gambia. So that was the whole reason. Mm. But when we got there, the concrete foundation hadn't been put down. So sadly, I wasn't there to help build the classrooms, but people went, the two couple, the couple went back and helped get it done eventually. So they did get two classrooms. Wow. And the other vehicles... 
with the Welsh people took they donated their vehicles to the charity and all the toys. So there was a lot of stuff that did make it there. So it was worth it. Mm-hmm. Completely different experience to what I thought it might be. Definitely worth doing. I don't know if I'd do it again. Quite an achievement to get yeah. across. You must be proud of yourself that you did it and you got through. And Of course, yeah. It was an achievement, definitely. Definitely an so, achievement. Going back, have you got any other plans or achievements that you want to do? I feel I really wanted to go to India, Sri Lanka, possibly South Africa and Eastern Europe. So my next adventure is Eastern Europe, which I'm going to start in Croatia yeah. with the possibility of going to Albania, Montenegro, possibly Greece, possibly Turkey. Again, I'm going to take it day by day. It's only yeah. a couple of months. Although I don't go out and splash my money, I, I really live on a budget and just try and make yeah. it last as long as possible. So I'll be eating the cheapest food and I'll be staying in budget accommodation. And again, that's how you meet a lot of the locals. And yeah. So yeah, but it's the first time I've gone away without having a party attitude. So I think I'm going to be doing more hiking and more, Yeah, I don't know. I love sunsets, sunsets my thing. So that's my new kind of high, just watching a sunset and then calling it a day. Yeah. Do you find that calming then? You said you were anxious. Do you find watching the sunset and rise, do you find that calming? Definitely my favourite part of the day. It's that kind of mist before it goes dark. And mm. yeah, I love it. Definitely. Yeah. You know, you say you're sober now. Do you sleep better now? Yeah, definitely. Um, been ups and downs. I think a lot of people carry on drinking and smoking because they don't want to go through the cold turkey. So, like, I've had a few cold turkeys from the drink, from the cigarettes. They weren't so bad, but I think it was the smoking. That was probably the worst because it was routine for 20-odd years. And yeah. you get used to a certain reality and your brain just struggles, but... I do get really crazy dreams now. I didn't realise I hadn't been dreaming for 20 years, well, not so much, but now pretty much every night. A lot of maybe suppressed memories, which things I've blanked out, that I dream about, things that happened, yeah. or not mm-hmm. things that people that I haven't thought about that I forgot existed. There's definitely a lot of stuff kind of in my subconscious, which is filtering out now, which is good because I'm processing it and trying to move yeah, forward absolutely. with Trying to live in the present rather than well on the past because I can't complain because I've done some really amazing things eventually yeah sure at the same time those things only came from things that went wrong or bad things that led to these things like I doubt I ever would have gone traveling if it wasn't for my dad and my friend dying so one thing another you know it drives you forward yeah like everyone I, I do want to settle down I just I don't want to go looking for something I want it to find me at the same time that's right. Yeah. It's important, isn't it? You know, because it's very much has been as, as well as travel. It's been a journey for you emotionally, hasn't it? And personally. Yeah, definitely. Well, like, say, if people yeah. ever want to hear any more, happy to do more. Definitely. Thank you very much. It's been fascinating. Yeah. I feel like I've rambled on a bit. I hope you've well, no, you've, got, in some of you've it. got so many experiences to talk about, you know. Thanks for sharing all these stories and, and also your personal journey. and. And you used to lots, lots, lots more beautiful sunsets for you to enjoy. Thank you. Appreciate you taking an interest in reading my stuff and giving me a chance as well. Well, thank you very much, George, for talking to us. And, and of course, to our listeners, we look forward to you joining us for our next episode when we talk to Pat Brambani. Pat is an amazing lady who was a World War II child evacuee and she'll share her story of her journey from the slums to hobnobbing with the millionaires in Ibiza. Incredible. 
So until then, take care and thank you for listening. <laughs>